This episode is brought to you in part by the Second Mission Foundation. Second Mission Foundation is a nonprofit organization that exists to educate, elevate, and advocate for members of America's service community in order to help them find their second mission after government service. Second Mission Foundation was started by and for the members of America's service community. That means members of the armed forces, first responders, security contractors, etc. Second Mission Foundation provides these veterans the opportunity for them to tell their stories, reach their goals, and make their voices heard through educational outreach, entrepreneurship support, and community involvement. For everything going on at Second Mission Foundation, go to secondmissionfoundation.org. That's Second Mission Foundation, all one word, dot org, secondmissionfoundation.org. Profiles and Havoc is a Havoc Journal podcast. Havoc Journal seeks to serve as the voice of the veteran community through a focus on current affairs and articles of interest to the public in general and the veteran community in particular. Havoc Journal strives to offer timely, current, and informative content. When you go to Havoc Journal, you will read the most articulate, opinionated, thoughtful, and provocative veteran writers writing about the nation, the world, politics, national security, culture, fitness, movies, the list goes on and on and on. Havoc Journal is always expanding, always striving to improve the reader's experience. Check it out at HavocJournal.com. That's Havoc with a K, Journal.com, HavocJournal.com. My guest today was the very first guest of 2023. I know we've had a couple of shows already in 2023, but this was the first show we actually recorded in 2023, uh, Tori Fisher. And Tori, um, I, I, you know, it's, it's amazing. It's amazing what, what Instagram recon will do for you. Uh, you just never find a dull story. Um, you know, I found Tori on Instagram. I thought her organization looked really interesting. Um, I, I will give you a little bit of background. It kind of dovetails with, uh, some stuff that's been going on for uh, me personally, where I've kind of run into some really crappy veterans, veteran run organizations and nonprofits that are really just lazy, possibly some shenanigans afoot. Um, You know, I'm not going around the clock to try to find out uh, only because I'm busy and I've got stuff to do, but I'm directing it to people that I hope will look into it more because I am concerned there's stolen valor stuff. I'm concerned that some of these organizations may have been taking a lot of people's money and getting awards sent to them that were not theirs, that they did not earn. I'm just some really seeing the seedy underbelly of the veteran nonprofit space. And coincidentally, I just happened upon arms to artisans when I was starting to hear about all this stuff and um, you know, it made for, it, it kind of put my thumb on the scale a little bit when it came to talking to Tori, because I wanted to um, kind of bounce some of that off her. Uh, I, I guess l- let me back up. may take the 30,000 foot view here. I think my, my first concern with this kind of really slovenly corrupt, um, incestuous kind of organization a bad a badly run veteran nonprofits is that they don't do what they purport to do 
And for somebody like Tori that is um, actively going about trying to help and spending every last dollar on trying to help and struggling with profitability in order to help, uh, I thought that was a good juxtaposition. I'm also I was also struck by the amount of redundancy. I, I think, you know, we've we've talked to a bunch of people that run or involved with veteran nonprofits. Um, Dave Camposano, Twenty Two Mohawks, comes to mind immediately. Um, certainly, you know, Jeff Dardia and the guys at Task Force Dagger, um, Hunter Seven, that kind of thing. Uh, guys with really good track records who are really doing a lot of good work. But I do feel like in the veteran nonprofit space, if you slap a label, it could be PTSD awareness, suicide prevention, homelessness, any of those things, people generally don't want to look at how the sausage is made. They like to throw money at you, feel a little bit better about themselves, and that's not wrong. And then get out of the way and not really keep a sense of accountability um, with those organizations. And I think there are those that take advantage. And there are a lot of opportunities for grifters, scam artists, con people to get involved, whether they are veterans or not. And I won't give you any spoilers about what Tori and I talk about when it comes to that. Um, but that was kind of the what was buzzing on in my mind just separately of my conversation with Tori when I talked to Tori. And then um, so then to talk to someone who's so whole sold, so utterly transparent and honest and um, gut wrenchingly specific about the trials and tribulations that she's had both personally, professionally, and in her, all of her aspirations with arms to artisans. I find that very refreshing. I will say I felt I was at an acutely inarticulate <laughs> uh, level when we did this show. Uh, I, I I think the holidays were still catching up with me, so I I've, I have not listened to the episode uh, yet. But my initial takeaway, I was like, God damn, I could not formulate a sentence to save my mind, to save my life, which really chaps my ass um, because Tori was just um, great and so whole sold. And uh, I, I, I don't think it'll take away from your appreciation of the episode. I'm mostly saying that out of some face saving <laughs> instinct. And, uh, and uh, anyway, hopefully it doesn't take away from your appreciation of the episode, um, but really enjoyed talking with her. I will also say this. Um, this was another concern that came up for me. I, I know with a lot of the folks that we talk to, it seems like they are all located in the Northeast. Some of that is accidental and some of that is intentional. Um, you know, obviously I'm going to know personally, know more people in the Northeast. So that makes sense. Um, in Tori's case, I did not know she was in New Jersey. And as she says, it's not like the organization only exists in New Jersey. Um, but, uh, you know, we're equal opportunity offenders guys. So, if anybody has folks anywhere in the country, even maybe not in the country, we'll talk to them. But that was, uh, I was just like, are we becoming very provincial? Are we seeming like we're a very provincial show that we keep finding people in Northeast? Um, so anyway, 
that's how that worked out. I did not know that going into the episode though. Um, but overall, just a great time talking with Tori. I will, um, I will look forward to talking to her again down the road. I'd love to see what continues to go on with her. Um, yeah, just what a story, what a story. And, um, I think she gives voice to certain moments that I can relate to. I'm sure many of you guys will be able to relate to. And I think that in and of itself is stuff that I will be thinking about in my quieter moments uh, for a while. Okay. I'm Christopher Paul Meyer, and this is Tori Fisher's Profile in Havoc. Welcome to the show, Tori. Thanks for having me. I am really glad you uh, that this worked out. Uh, this is so you were one of those uh, Instagram recons that really paid off. I was like, first off, I didn't realize you guys were in New Jersey. Like I was like, oh shit, we're like right we're in New York, so we're like right next to yeah. you guys. Um, I had yeah. no idea. Um, but this was very cool because you guys are um, you're really doing something that nobody else is doing right i mean it's weird to say because there's a million veteran organizations that all seem like 90 percent of them seem very redundant but i can't off the top of my head think of people that are doing exactly what you're doing where did this idea come from where did where did the origination of arms to artisans start so (laughs) arms artisans is actually rooted in a a lot of things um so first um we're not necessarily just new jersey I happen to be in New Jersey. Mm-hmm. Um, the board of A2A is pretty much spread out all over the place. We uh, consider ourselves to be national. We pretty much work with anybody in the country. Um, I just personally am based in New Jersey. Sure, sure. So where A2A came from, uh, I kind of have to go back to really just the beginning of myself and like some of my own mm-hmm. evolving journey. Um, so when I I was still in the army and I had started a brewery. So I also own a brewery, uh, backward flag brewing. Um, so that brewery started out very small here in New Jersey and it's mostly focused on veteran community, veteran first responders. Um, when I started that, I was also kind of going through my own transition of leaving the military. I got out a few months after I started the brewery. Um, prior to that, I was active duty and, uh, had gotten out once before, and I had spent about a year out and experienced the full transition of just how terrible that is. I just didn't realize that at the time I wasn't, um, I think mature enough yet and more my being a veteran and what it was to what all these things are that we talk about, right? All the veteran issues, the transition issues, the spiraling and all that shit. Um, so I remembered how terrible that experience was that that year of my life when I got out and where I was at. So when I opened the brewery, that was the second time I got out and my transition was a little bit better, but it still hit me really hard. And that's um, some deep, dark stuff. You know, we can talk about at some point if you want. Um, But bringing in all the other the veterans that came in to work at the brewery and veterans who came to the brewery, it really helped with that. It kind of put me on 
more level ground and a little more in touch with what the whole veteran community thing was really about and why like we need to be there for each other. And so where A2A came from was one day I was uh was working in the brewery and again super small, never really had money to pay people, um, didn't really have employees. And a, a guy showed up to the brewery and he was like, Hey, um, I heard maybe you were hiring. Um, you know, I'd really like a job here. So I was like, Hey, you know, I uh really can't hire you. I don't have money to pay anybody, you know, I'm really sorry. And uh he looked at me and he said, Um, look, um, I got out of the Marines, I just got out of law enforcement, and right now I just need something that looks better than my four walls and my gun. And, you know, it clicked with me because I had kind of been there at one point of understanding like that, that loss of purpose and just needing something, anything. And so I brought him in and uh, it started with literally showing him how to like scrub floors, you know, sweep things, um, how to take apart a tank and little by little just gave him something to do. And he would show up day after day and um, he would just work. He would work and, uh, He's known for talking a lot. He just talks, 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 you know, and, um, but I'd let him go, you know, sometimes I'd yell at him. He was a Marine. So I learned one day I just had to fucking yell at him to get him to shut up, you know, but he was happy where he was at. And that's, was kind of where the start of it uh, happened. More people would come in and sometimes it was just a night that we were open, you know, a guy would be fighting with his wife and I'd hand him a bottle of bleach and tell him to scrub the wall. And he was happy doing that. Um, And then eventually people kind of caught on that, um, that I was doing this at the brewery, you know, that we had veterans coming and helping mm-hmm. and help with brewing or whatever it was that we yeah. were doing. And they'd want to know how they could donate towards that. And it wasn't really a, it wasn't a thing, you know, I was just helping guys out, you know, in the same way that I felt like I needed somebody to help me out. And um, so I got in my head that, well, maybe I'll start a nonprofit um, and it wasn't because I wanted to start a big organization. It was because really, I just wanted a legitimate place to put these people's money, you yeah. know, and make it legit yeah. and uh, like do something with it. So I was like starting a 501. That can't be too hard. I started a business. Uh, it's a lot harder than people think. Like I screwed it all up in the beginning. I had to get a lawyer to fix everything for me. Um, and then part of that process is you have to come up with a mission statement. Yeah. What exactly does your nonprofit do? Quite honestly, at the time, I had no fucking idea. I was just like, I'm just trying to help some guys out. And um, so I started piecing together. And what initially A2A started as was um, helping veterans transition from service into the brewing industry and giving them places to work. And we'd partner with um, other breweries where our veterans would go and work at another brewery for a day or two. Yep. Um, and we were paying the veteran as basically a stipend. And, um, but it was, it was cool, but not really sustainable. Um, I was trying to continue to do like the direct peer to peer with everybody individually, myself on top of running the business and all that. So the first year is very different than what it ended up being later. Um, and what it ended up transitioning into um, came from, Again, veteran connections. I was working a uh, a charity event with another organization. It's Backpacks for Life. I don't know if you're familiar with them. No. They're also based in Jersey. Um, the founder of that, it's a, a Marine and, and his now wife. They recently got married. 
um, great people, but they have a big golf outing. And so they asked me to come out and serve beer on the golf course. And two of my friends also have companies. Um, one is Mobile Cigar Lounge. And so he was there rolling his cigars and the other guy is Black Six Coffee. So you got Joe and Joey. So we're on the golf course. It's a good name um, for a coffee company, by the way. What, Black Six? Joe, no, Joe. Oh, if you're oh, going to have a coffee company, it's good to be named Joe. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right? I think that fits, yeah. So uh, but we're out there on the golf course. And uh, in the morning, quite honestly, we, we had um, we had a couple Bloody Marys, more, maybe more than a couple. Because it's like people come, they get their beer, cigars, coffee, and then it's like a shotgun start. And you don't really see a lot of people. You're just kind of hanging out. Right. So it's just the three of us, maybe slightly drunk. And uh, Joe from the Scar Lounge is sitting next to me. And he's like talking about how um, he wants to go to this cigar rolling course out in Texas and learn how to mm. hand roll cigars. And how he thinks it'll really help his company because he'll be able to come back and. Uh, you know, teach other veterans how to do this and it's going to help other veterans and it's going to help grow his company, but he needs to scrounge up the cash to do that. So at the time it really wasn't much. It was like, uh, in the grand scheme, you know, it was like two grand that he needed mm -hmm. for like the whole course and to get out there and stuff. So it just kind of clicked in my head, you know, and I, I looked at him and I, how much do you need to do that? You know, and he gave me the number and it was kind of like on the spot. Um, my mission statement changed, you know, that I really didn't need to just focus on, on veterans in the brewing industry. Really what was key about what they were doing in my brewery was just doing something with their hands, you know, doing something where they were creating something, they were kind of putting themselves into it. They were passionate about it. And it wasn't necessarily like that particular trade. It didn't matter that it was brewing or cigars right. or whatever. It was just that they were putting themselves into something. And I changed the statement right then and there of what A2A would do. Um, it's it's been a stumbling process since, you know, by no means yeah. would I say that we are like a you know a fine oiled machine, um, figuring it out every day, still consistently evolving that mission statement and how we do things. Sure. Um, but that's really where it came from. How soon after Backward Flag Brewing did you start A2A? What was the flash to bang with that? Was that happening so, quickly when people started stumbling in off backward the Backward flag opened in 2015. And I think on paper, Eight Away was 2017. Okay. I think is when I actually formed Eight Away and then it kind of started evolving gotcha. into what it is. And when the golf course happened and you had your next epiphany, how was backward flag doing? Were you as a business, as a as a for-profit business? Were you having the success that you were like, I've got the bandwidth and the assets and the resources to be able to manage this? Or was it all growing concurrently? Yeah, absolutely not. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and the truth is, you know, and I, I tell most people, um, so Backward Flag has a really big um, brand presence. People really know Backward Flag. And, you know, but the truth is, even today, we're not profitable. We struggle. Um and it's mainly because I I'm not a business person whatsoever. Sure. Um, I I personally think I'm pretty terrible at it. Um, but I maintain things, you know, I keep it afloat. And it's and it's really because I just I realize that I'm not, I don't give a shit about dollars and cents. 
And to be a good business person to some level, you have to want to be profitable. You have to want money. Sure. And I don't. So I would say that both of those endeavors have struggled <laughs> together. Um, A to A has probably in the last year started to grow um, a lot more than it had in the past. And that's mostly because I, I got smart and I brought on a really good board of people um, and they're pushing me. And I, I brought on some of the, the lessons I learned in starting my business. I applied to rebuilding A2A in the board and knowing that I had to bring in some people that are smart um, because even a nonprofit in some way has to run a little bit like a business. You have to have money coming in for you to help yeah. people. Yeah. So I brought in the people that are, better at that. They're the ones that keep me in check because I'm the person that, you know, if I only have $20 in my pocket and it's the only $20 I have, I'm still going to give it to somebody. And they're the ones that kind of go, you can't do that. Like we have to take care of ourselves. We have to put um, checks and balances in place. You know, we have to have a strategy and uh, without them, we wouldn't really be going where we're going now. But that's so, kind of that's kind of the nonprofit visionary, right? All gas and no brakes, and that's why you need a board. Is somebody's got to put the brakes yeah. on somewhere? Yeah, right? absolutely. Do you feel? I mean, this is kind of a loaded question. Where do you feel more at home? Do you feel more at home with Black Flag Backward Flag Brewing, or do you feel more at home with A two A? Or is there a difference? So, that's um, questions that I I struggle with. Like you're literally asking the question that I've asked myself a lot over the last few months. Mm. Um, so just to add a little more to that. So backward flag and A2A aren't the only things that I do. Um, so I'm also on the board of another nonprofit, uh, Recalibrate. Mm -hmm. So I do um, more like the mental wellness stuff. So I do the I do peer to peer meetings. Um, that was something that was going before I came on. It was kind of dying. I took it over. Um, I'm in school working on a degree in psychology because I want to work with people eventually at a clinical level. Wow. Um, I'm a, a veterans mentor with the prosecutor's office to program here with the veteran diversion program. And six months ago, I took a full-time job doing social work uh, in the police departments Holy with Jesus. a healthcare company. So, uh, yeah, so I spent a lot of time going through my head trying to figure out what the fuck I want to be when I grow up. Yeah. Um, I know that I like working with people specifically. I like working with veterans and law enforcement, I'm a lot more comfortable there. Um, and then sometimes thinking, well, something has to come off this, this plate for me to, you know, succeed completely in maybe not succeed, but give something my attention in a way that I need to for sure. it to be quality. Um, so what the question you asked is, uh, you know, I, I, I really don't know. I don't, there I don't are think different days. Sorry. That, go ahead. Um, no, I was saying that there's just different days. It's where there are some days that I'm ready to write off um, backward flag. Um, at some points I actually have put in things in motion where I thought I was going to file for, for bankruptcy and just close. I thought that I was going to hand the reins over to somebody else and let them carry it on because uh, it does have such an impact on the veteran community. If it was just a business, honestly, I would close it and just move on to new things. I've been doing that for seven years and it taught me everything that I needed to, to know to be where I'm at now. Um, 
but it's not that simple just to close it down. There's a lot of um, people's hearts and, and minds are like tied into that place. So, you know, there's times that I go through that and then something will happen and I'll feel rejuvenated and I'll go, all right, you know, like I got to get back to it. I got to keep yeah. this thing growing. I need to focus on this. And honestly, that'll kind of peter out. And then I'll be on A2A and I'll like, all right, like I got to do this. And I'll sit down and I'll spend like a day or two, like hot, you know, and I'll come yeah. up with all these new strategies and all this shit and I'll throw it at the board. I'm like, all right, let's do this. And then like, I'll find myself kind of peter out on that, you know, and then, and, and that's, and that's just how it is. And that's, um, that's as honest as I can be about it. It's just, it's constant ebbs and flows yeah. of where am I going? What am I doing? Um, but A2A is definitely a, a passion of knowing what what we're doing and the potential of what we can do as we grow because like you said there really aren't any there's nobody else doing it especially the way that we're doing it there's definitely like veteran companies or nonprofits that focus in arts you know there's clay or you can um music but my vision is more broad you know, any any veteran that's working outside of like traditional spaces as as creators, you know, whether that's music or poetry or, you know, being an author or creating something with your hands um, and also looking at more of the, the cathartic value of that. And that's more of my focus is. It's a conversation I have with the board pretty frequently is. Putting out there like, you know, you always have to have measures of success. And in defining what a measure of success for A2A is, is hard because for me, it is more about the cathartic value of something. Maybe we put a guy in an internship for like three months in a brewery and then he finishes that internship and he decides he's not going to work in a brewery, but he's a better person. He's a more whole person. And he goes on. I don't care. Maybe he becomes a, you know, stay stay at home dad. But now he's a better father at home because he's he's found himself again. To me, that's success. Or you can have somebody like like Joey from Mobile Cigar Lounge, who's now on our board. Um, he went on and he's grown his company. I I think he's got like hundreds of veterans working for him. Wow. I'm pretty sure he just hit a million dollars in sales this year. Wow. And wow. when we had that conversation initially, it was like just him. You know, and that's a whole different type of success. You know, but he's also now that whole force multiplier thing. He's hiring all these vets that he has working for him and they're out doing things and they're finding their place. And uh, I don't know, I can go on and on, but that's that's really what it's about. It's more the I don't know, the the, the passion or the spirit of what we're supposed to be doing for each other as veterans. It's so I love first off, I love the honesty and the transparency, because I think that's relatable. I can relate to that. I'm sure a lot of people can. That I think when you get out, there's there's kind of a release of like a whole lot of passion, a whole lot of ideas. And there's and you have energy and know-how, but now it's finding what lane does that fit in. And you have and I think there's you strike me as a certain breed that I can relate to a lot, where you just are burgeoning with ideas. And you're going, okay, I've got all this. I know this is good. And now what, what's the form does it need to take? And that's a process. And I think there's, I think there are veterans that really struggle with that because yeah. they, they feel the, the engine's on. It's just like, I don't know what the chassis is, <laughs> but the right. engine's run, run not. And it's right. going, I just got to figure out what this chassis needs to be. It does seem like though all of your endeavors 
do have a, a similar chassis in that they are all about helping that veteran law enforcement space um, kind of uh, find the right way to bring a therapeutic aspect to something practical. Right. Right. It seems like that's always what's behind it. And I think that's, um, it's a facilitator position. It seems like even in your um, now full-time career or full-time job, you know, in your, in your schoolwork, like there's still that passion to help. Right. And I, that's, I think if I, I feel like to have that much emphasis in that direction, can't help but bring a lot of positive second and third order effects for the community. I want to back up to your service because um, it's a big decision to get out of the military. Why did you get out the first time? What was that about? What was going on for you then? Um, you know, probably this will probably be the first time that I actually talk about that, like ever. Most of my friends probably don't even know like the story of me getting out the first time. Um, so I did three years, a little over three years of my initial contract out of my, my four-year contract. So I was 18, I enlisted and I ended up turning 19 in Iraq. Um, so I was with first armor division. Um, we were in Satter city at the martyrs monument. Um, at the time I was communications line of sight. So basically you put a big antennas all over the place. And then mm-hmm. we drive around at remote sites, check on things and um, just do a lot of that stuff. So when I came home, uh, everything was okay for a while. And to be honest, it's a lot of blank space. Um, but I spiraled pretty hard and I was stationed in Germany and I drank a lot, like a lot. Like I went on three, four day benders, um, an insane amount. And, uh, somewhere in there, um, things just really, really weren't good at all. And I, I started seeking mental health and, uh, it did not work out for me very well. Um, maybe about two years ago, I actually, um, went digging for my records to, because it's something, you know, you kind of go through that and it just turns into a black space in your mind of like what happened during that time. And what really bothered me was when I looked at my records, I could see that like I had sought mental health numerous times. And, but rather than helping me, I had multitudes of negative counseling statements. And this is went from, I went from you know, getting all my stupid little ribbons and awards and being held up as being like a stellar soldier yeah. to all of a sudden night and day, like you're not performing well, you've isolated yourself from the team, this won't be tolerated kind of shit. And I look at that now and I'm like, why didn't somebody just fucking help me? You know, like I don't think that we were talking about things the way we talk about them now then, but I was 19, I guess at that point I was maybe 20 and, um, you know, came back from my first deployment and, uh, it was just, you know, not to say that it was the deployment that fucked me up, but I think it, uh, is maybe a trigger, you know, for all the other things going on in life too. And so I ended up getting out. So I, I got out on a, 
it's basically a mental health chapter. Um, they coded it. There was a guy I remember going through the paperwork and he hooked me up because he said, look, if I code it as this, you'll never be able to get back in. But if I code it as this, and it was something vague, it was like disability, but not physical or something like that. It gave me where I could be out for like two years and then possibly re-enlist again in the future. So without that stupid little code on my 214, like that would have been the end of my military journey. So that was the first time I got out. Um, And it was, you can go down a whole fucking rabbit hole of what happened when I got out the first time. You know, it was an abusive relationship, sleeping on my parents' floor in their basement, a lot of things going on uh, in that time, as well as then I ended up getting a job working in uh, security, which was kind of where I realized how much I hated not being in the military. Mm-hmm. I had every fucking job under the sun. I waitress. I worked um, stocking shelves at Walmart. Mm-hmm. And I remember that interview, like I, I didn't value myself, you know, like that I had been somebody, I had done some shit, I had been deployed. And now here I am like applying for jobs at Subway and McDonald's being told that I was uh, too qualified, but then like overqualified for like other things. So like I go to this interview at, at Walmart and I'm sitting in front of some chick that's like college age and she's a manager, you know, and she's asking me questions. And like, I remember one of the questions was, you know, can you think of a time where, you know, somebody in your team needed help and you helped them. And Iraq was still so fresh in my brain. Like that's all I could think of yeah. Yeah. You know, and like, I remember using, I don't remember what my answers were, but they were all examples of like shit that happened in Iraq and how I right. resolved it. And she's just looking at me like I'm nuts. And I remember then she asked me, what do you expect to get paid for this job? And I think I answered like $7 an hour because that's, I had no concept of like what minimum wage was or what a civilian career or job pays. You know, I was 18 when I left. And I got stationed in Germany, Iraq, and then Germany. I hadn't even been in the fucking country. Like I had, you know what I mean? Yeah. I felt so removed and kind of alien. The whole world was alien to me at the time. And um, so I went through all that. And then working the security job, hated that. I was thinking about maybe trying to be a cop because that's what we all do when we first get out. And um, decided that wasn't really going to be a good place for me. And uh. Then I found out about the New Jersey Guard, which I never thought that I would join the National Guard because being active duty, you're like the guard, (laughs) you know, like you're not going to do that. And um, my my now ex, um, he he was he was a pilot, the aviation um, took me to the facility, the airfield to introduce me to people. And I sat and I watched a, a Blackhawk take off and. Somebody pointed out the people around the Blackhawk were crew chiefs and they were like, you want to do that? I was like, yeah, that's fucking cool. And um, that's uh, that's kind of the, the start of the other half of the story. But so your question was why yeah. I got out. That was that was why, because because um, I fell apart. Did you feel like you were a different person when you enlisted or did you feel like you're 
just mining the same ground again and like okay I, I i felt like a completely different person at that point one i think just because aviation the nature of it's different you're very independent there is no like not to say that we hide in a team but you are working in a team of four people on an aircraft and uh you and there's not a whole lot of women <laughs> so yeah. you better step up your fucking game and uh and i did i just poured myself into that i feel like i was very good at what i did um you know got all the accolades that went along with it and then i deployed with them and uh, i went back to iraq that was 2009 um with them we were in uh, alcut and we did a little mixture of a lot of things out there between um training air assault with ODA they were training Iraqis what they call themselves SWAT teams which is complete bullshit um so we were teaching Iraqis how to properly execute aircraft and the air assault um then we did you know transport just people picking guys up making sure they're not on the roads we did observation where you know before we'd come in and land for the night we'd fly around and uh you know look for any type of mortar tubes stuff like that mm -hmm. um and then we did um hero missions which was you know the part of the mission that always definitely sucked and has stuck with me and still sticks with me where you know we went and picked up our fallen when, when they needed it sure. um and i felt but i definitely felt more in control of my career um myself i knew more about what was going on in my surroundings. I became a leader, you know, during that time I was an NCO, you mm -hmm. know, so I was training other people below me. Um, I think that's where I developed a lot more of my ability to be a mentor. Um, so that, that was a big, big change. And for me, that was like, a maybe a rebirth or like, we don't all get a do over. But I'm really grateful that I got that because I think if my career would have ended in 2006 on that note, I don't really know what the trajectory of my life would have been. When you came back the second time from Iraq, how did you feel? Did you feel like you were at the peak of your powers, like, like you'd really climbed the summit? Or did you still feel like there was a lot more you wanted and needed to do inside the military? Yeah, at, at the time, I there was a lot more I wanted to do. I um, I guess I just haven't really changed a lot. Where I just want to do everything. Um, I wanted to go to you know be an instructor. I wanted to deploy again. There was already rumors at that time of another deployment. This one going to Afghanistan, and um, not everybody gets it. I think you will. In my head, I was like, well, I got two to Iraq. I want the Afghanistan notch on mm -hmm. my belt too. Yep. Um, there was a lot of that going on. Um, that rotation ended up being canceled a couple times. Um, and that was actually where my focus started to change and shift again, where things started to slow down. Um, I was working, so it's National Guard, but at that point I had gotten a full-time job with the Guard. So I was a oh, wow. federal technician. Okay. So, um, so you're AGR. So there's AGR and federal techs. Um, okay. Pretty oh, much gotcha. do the yep. same shit, but mm -hmm. as they say, different pot of money. Mm -hmm. So still going to work every day in the uniform. 
still doing the military thing, just getting paid from somebody else, don't have TRICARE, you know, that kind of thing. Right. Um, I was uh, aviation life support. That was my full-time job while still being a crew chief. Um, so that was pretty cool. Like I went out and found all the latest and greatest gear. I would make phone calls and like work out deals with contractors, like send me cool new knives that like, I'll give it to the crew and we'll try them out and um, set up survival training, take guys out, teach them how to build fires. You know, it it was a good time. I, I really enjoyed the job and I did that for a good number of years. Um, but then I also, again, I, maybe it's just that whole career ADD thing. I started to feel restless again. And I don't know, I, I decided that I wanted to start a business. At the time, I didn't entirely know what it was. Um, I started putting together a plan for a restaurant because I was really into oh. that. I wanted to do the whole farm to table thing. I was literally going to like people's farms and talking to them. Wow. I was researching like humane um, slaughterhouses because I wanted it all to be like, I had this whole plan. I even started working nights in a in a restaurant on top of my job um, just to gain, try and gain some experience because I had never worked in a restaurant. And now here I am trying to open one. And I figured out real quick that I should not do that. That was a terrible idea because just because you like to brutal. cook doesn't mean you should open a restaurant. Oh, yeah. yeah, it was brutal. it was terrible. Yeah. Um, you know, and I did that for free. I was just I remember the the owner was just like why, why do you come here every day? Like he wasn't paying me. And I like, I, I worked my ass off because that's what we know how to do. And I remember one day him telling me like, you know, you work harder than the people I pay. Like, it's just, what's what we do. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I figured out that that wasn't really going to work. And at the time brewing was a little bit of a hobby at home and in the state of New Jersey, um, some, uh, laws had changed that made it a little more practical for small breweries to open up. Mm. So I started putting that plan together. And um, and that was that was a big part of the transition out. I started the brewery while I was still in. Yeah. And there were some other major life events going on. Um again, it's more like pretty deep stuff where I pretty much panicked and decided that I needed to isolate and my contract was up. So I didn't re-enlist. And that's uh that was kind of how that ended up happening as well. So, I mean, obviously talk to your level of comfort with this, but when you say you panicked and needed to isolate that, you mean you, that's what led you to get out of the military or was that what also steered you specifically to brewing or specifically to that business? Like what was the, what was the, the end result of that panic of the isolation? It was um, a factor. Okay. So the brewery at that point was was already open. Um, I had opened it with my my now ex-husband. And uh, things were not going well between us. We had deployed together. And uh, after we had come home, it was a pretty solid downward spiral when we got home. There was like all out fights, you know, screaming in the front yard, all that stuff. Um, a lot of things that nobody around me knew was going on. And then um, in there, I ended up meeting somebody as well, uh, who is now my my wife. And that was a big transition for me, obviously. Yeah. So, <laughs> so it was um, a big part of things was 
he and I were in the same unit together for years. Everybody wow. knew us as, I mean, we even flew missions together in Iraq. Wow. Um, and everybody knew us as like power couple was what they perceived to be the power couple. He was a pilot. I was the crew chief, you know, just right. everything. So then I started going through this divorce and in my head, it was a lot of just going to the unit every day and like people would ask about him and stuff. And in my head, I was like, well, not only am I going through a divorce, which was shocking to everybody, but I'm also now dating this girl who's also in the unit. Oh, my Lord. Oh, yeah. Wow. <laughs> so they actually work together wow. now. So <laughs> it was a lot. It was like a lot. And um, so you couldn't I was, continue. I mean, you can't. I mean, I, I'm just trying to put myself in your position. I don't know that I could yeah. ever show up there if that was, was all going on. Yeah, it was just so much, you know, it yeah. was like and there was like a whole just a personal turmoil, I guess, of like of course. coming out, if you want to call it that or sure, whatever. Um, my, my family didn't know. Um, nobody knew. So it was just a whole lot. And uh, yeah, I think I like I hit the kill switch and I was like, I'm out. And um, I did it when my unit was away on uh, on AT. I had stayed back because they had let me have a uh, home station orders so I could take care of my business. So my contract was coming around the corner and I was supposed to re-enlist. Everybody expected me to re-enlist sure. and um, I just didn't. And so by the time they all came back, it was kind of like, you got out. <laughs> wow. And uh, yeah, it was... And then there was a big hole, big black hole a little bit after that too. So of course. Did you so I guess the obvious question is if that had not all happened, whether you had not been married in the first place to somebody in the unit or just you'd stayed married but the drama wasn't going on, would you have gotten out? I don't know. I I do regret getting out because I really loved my career. Like Flying, you know, crew and Blackhawks is like, to me, still one of the coolest things you could possibly do. There is nothing dull about that job. You know, it was ever changing. The the mission flow is always there. You know, there was always something. Even as a guard unit, where we're located, you're always picking up stuff from D.C., New York, um, and then just deployments. Aviation is always one of the first assets to go. Sure. And um, right after I got out they ended up standing up a medevac unit, which was something I really wanted to do. And I think it was in that same year they stood this unit up. And by the next year, guess where they went? Afghanistan. Yeah. And uh, I fucking kicked myself so many times. But, you know, it's regrets that you have. But then again, looking at everything that I've done since then and just telling myself that I, I serve in a different kind of way. When you got out for good were you able to throw yourself into the business or was that now in dispute as well because of the divorce and everything like how much were you able to dedicate yourself and preoccupy your mind to a positive goal or how much of you was just floating in the ether yeah it is um again a little of both um i well, quite honestly i went back to to drinking a lot again mm-hmm. um you do work at a brewery yeah. yeah, I worked in a brewery. Um, 
but a lot of people uh so they would think you know whatever but bourbon's more like it was more the the demon drink um but i yeah i went through a period of again blur you know it all the whole world blurred a little bit how my business kept going i'm not entirely sure mm -hmm. i had really good friends that like stepped up and wouldn't show up and help with things um my now wife worked really hard to like keep me together you know keep me pointed in the right direction but i was drinking a lot um and i went back into a whole period of depression between now completely getting out again doing something i love and not a whole lot of people reached out to me during that time and financially I had no money because I had quit my my tech job um, a few months before the divorce. So the idea was I was going to run the business. His income was enough. And now I'm unemployed, um, going through this terrible divorce with him. I slept a lot of nights uh, at the brewery on a couch um, just so I didn't have to be at the house. And uh, yeah, it was it was just <laughs> it was pretty shitty time. But you and, got uh, the business. I mean, the business was in your name. Yeah. Yeah. I, from the beginning, I pretty much owned majority of the business. And then I, he didn't want anything really to do with it. He wasn't a much of an active player to begin with. Um, so I ended up finding a, a friend that bought his shares, you know, and um, kind of got him out of the picture. So we we do have a daughter together. So we have to you know, have some kind of relationship. Sure. It's typically not good, but do my best. He does his best. Um, yeah. So I think during that period, finances, like I said, were, were terrible. Um, at this point, I wasn't making any money because the brewery wasn't anywhere in a place where I could draw a salary off of it. Um, I had had not filed any type of VA claims or anything. So I wasn't getting any type of anything from there. So I pretty much had nothing. Um, my wife did the best she could on, on her small salary. And uh, yeah. And yeah, one day I had a, I had a serious wall. I remember I was super stressed and just going through it. And uh, I went and checked the mail and I remember there was like a, a letter in the mail and I think it said maybe, you know, defense department or something on it. And in my head, I remember thinking like, maybe this is some kind of check, like a final mm -hmm. check or something. And something I just really needed at that time. And um, when I opened it, it was actually a uh, a bill for Same like a couple charges. of, yeah, for a couple of pieces of equipment, like minor shit that I guess I had missed, you know, I'd been moved around a lot, you know how it is. Yeah. Like you go to get out, you don't have everything. And they sent me a, a fucking bill. And, um, I think it was a day or two before that my car had gotten repoed because <laughs> I couldn't pay for it. I woke up in the morning to hearing chains in my driveway, pulling the, the car out of the driveway and all my gear was in it. So, so maybe that happened like a week or two before it might it must have been that because i remember that was a whole thing them calling me and yelling at me that i had to get my shit turned in and me trying to explain to them that my car just got repoed is in an impound lot and i don't have the money to get it out and all my shit's in there 
Yeah. So I went and turned all my stuff in. And I think it was a few weeks maybe after that I got that bill. And uh, you know, and I had a um my my moment, I'll say, you know, I had a gun and uh just like a lot of people, um my daughter was the only reason why that didn't happen that day. And uh I gave my gun away. <laughs> yeah. But yeah. When you look back on that time and think of what got you through, was it your daughter that through that got you through everything that was constantly like what was it that you were able to anchor into? What was the way out for you? Um, my daughter definitely, you know, is always a big grounding point. Um my my wife pushed me a lot. Um, even though you know she had a lot of her own problems. Um she always kind of helped to push in the right direction. Um, and then I really started to tap in more into the the veteran community here. So where we're at in Ocean County is um it's a big, big veteran presence. And I want to say sometime around that time, I decided, and it might have been just because of everything I was going through, um, at the brewery, I decided to, to host like an event. And I called it those like us. And I made it like an after hours thing because I knew that veterans needed to talk to people. And I knew a lot of veterans didn't want to go to a doctor's office to do it. A lot of vets aren't going to go and make that mental health appointment. So in my head, I was like, I'm going to bring in like veteran organizations that I can find and maybe a handful of like local mental health professionals and we're not going to make it like an official thing. It's going to be more of a, this is an event for vets, like come grab a beer and these people are going to be talking and you might just happen to listen to them. Right. And the first time I did it, um, you know, I had a handful of people, but I met some really great people and some organizations and, um, and I started doing more of those things, connecting, tapping into the veteran community here. And I think eventually that's really what really what kept me going. Um, I still I was still drinking a lot at that point. And I did for for a while. Um, and then I had a big blow up one night with uh, my wife. And, you know, decided I needed to actually seek mental health myself. Um, and then I went to I feel like I'm just rambling here. <laughs> you're not. You know, you're not at all. In fact, I, I was going to say this is incredibly relatable, um, especially because I think one of the things and I'll, I'll filibuster for a second to, so you don't feel like you're rambling. Um, <laughs> but I mean, I, I think one of the things that's often missing that I think we as vets feel when you go into the VA system or when you go to mental health counseling or have any kind of therapeutic treatment is not a lack of empathy because people don't want to help, but a lack of ability to know how to help. And it strikes me that when you've walked the path that you've walked, you're incredibly uniquely situated to help because it's not academic. It's not, um, it's not just coming from a do-gooder place. It's coming from an experiential wisdom that you know exactly what that feels like. And it, and you, there has to, it has to pass the smell test if you're going to be able to really help people. 
there ha- and it, it doesn't mean you have to necessarily have gone through hell yourself, but to whatever degree you have, it definitely helps. And that adds a level of credibility and a level of um, understanding that I think is very, I, th- I think a lot of people would respond to. I don't know. That's my sense listening to what you're saying. I, yeah. And I would agree with that. Um, falling back on those experiences is what has helped me a lot. Even now with the the job that I do now, I don't have a degree. I'm the only one I'm pretty sure that works there. It doesn't, <laughs> um, yeah. but I have that experience and I am able to empathize with people a lot. Um, that day when I went to the, the VA, um, it, it did not go well. You know, there was me showing up there thinking I'm going to get some kind of help. And um, I do think the VA has value um, in some areas. Um, mental health is not one of them. Um, in, in my opinion, and what I've experienced and seen other people go through, you know, and if somebody's getting that help, I'm fucking, you know, ecstatic for them if it's working for them. Um, but I remember leaving more pissed off than when I got there. And uh, and I called a friend. So during all this, as I'm spiraling and doing all these things, I had um, I had met a guy um we made some beer together. So he was a Marine, uh, an amputee. Um, he had lost his leg in Afghanistan. And uh, we became very, very good friends. And he would constantly tell me, you know, you should really talk to talk to my therapist. Mm-hmm. And I would just, I'm not doing that. I'm not doing that. I was still, as much as I was trying to like work with other people, I was in complete denial that one, I had a drinking issue going on, you know, or that I was spiraling. I didn't recognize any of the stuff. So I remember I called him on my way back from the VA and I was like, fine, you know, hook me up with your guy and I'll start talking to him. And, uh, and I did. And, um, it got, it started getting much better, you know, started putting things together again. The the drinking was getting better, but still there. Um, I feel like this just goes on like really deeper, darker holes as we go. Um, Listen, but that's how it is. <laughs> that's how it is, right? I mean, that's it. Yeah. Yeah. So no, it's fascinating. Yeah. So things I was back and forth with that, struggling with getting better, but struggling with the drinking. And then um then in May of 2020, um, I got a phone call and it was from a, a friend. Anna asked me if I was alone and um, told him I was and uh, and he just spit it out that uh, that guy that I was friends with um, and had helped me out uh, shot himself. And uh, and I remember like, again, the whole world just feeling like it fucking crumbled. And that was and I hate to say it, that was the biggest turning point for me in a positive direction because it completely slapped me in the face of like all the things that he was doing. You know, he was out there as like doing motivational speaking and he was a well-known person and uh, his name is Rory, Rory Hamill. And uh, if, if that could happen, I really need to get my shit together because I'm not taking therapy serious. 
I'm still drinking. I'm not doing the things I should be doing. And I decided that day to not to not pick up a bottle because I was afraid of all the emotions that I had going on at that time. That if I did open one, that I was just going to sit there and drink myself to death. So I just I didn't touch anything. Um, I didn't touch a drop of anything probably for about a month, which may not seem like a long time, but for somebody that was drinking a bottle of bourbon plus a night, it was huge. Um, and then I slowly allowed myself to reintroduce, you know, alcohol back into my life in like a social aspect or like a, because I kind of said, look, you know, to myself, if, um, you can either do this, but if you can't find the stop switch, you're going to have to give it up like completely, completely. Um, but that same week when he died was a week that I enrolled in school for psychology. Um, that was kind of what I did for myself was just grasping at straws. What do I do? What do I do? Um, and he had always given me shit about going back to school. Um, I think he had just started his master's program, social work. Um, you know, doing all the, the same things that pretty much the path that I'm on now. And uh, I guess I just pulled that trigger and decided, like, I'm going to do this and poured myself into that. And that that is what really set off everything that I've been doing since then was was that day. Do you feel like everything exponentially started improving from that day on? Like your mission got clearer, your focus got clearer. I mean, was that? Um, yeah. Um, you know, focus, maybe not so much, like, you know, we established some kind of, you know, all over the place with things sometimes, but the realization that I wanted to work with people and that I cared about people and that, you know, I was going to make it a, like a, a personal passion to try and be there for fucking everybody that I could and help in any way that I could, um, as well as starting to center and focus for myself so that I could keep myself together. You know, I, I think prior to him dying, I just wasn't taking it serious. I was in that, like I was doing stuff, but I was more in like a fuck it kind of mode of like, I'll drink and be stupid and I'll wake up and be hung over and I'll just float through life and do this thing. And like, not really like I was doing things, but not, doing anything if that makes sense you know I'd show up to therapy and like he would talk at me you know but then like my next therapy session I'm showing up hungover you know because I didn't wasn't actively doing anything um and after that yeah I started to like just completely focus and now now I'm like a total nerd when it comes to anything mindfulness and you know, reading every book under the sun and preaching to people like how to reframe thoughts. And, yeah. you know, I just, it all clicked in my head. Do you have a self-care regimen? Do you have things that you do that you have to do every day? Yeah. Um, I do get off of those regiments and then I feel the effects of it pretty quickly, Sure, you know, where I'll hit that slump, but I've gotten better at self-talk of like, you can't just sit here. Like, I know that you feel like shit right now. And I know that you feel like worn out, but you need to get the fuck up and you need to go do something. Um, 
for me, like a big reset is, um, I like to go hiking. Mm. So, um, I'll get up at like four or five o'clock in the morning and, uh, here in New Jersey where I'm at, there aren't any fucking mountains. So <laughs> I'll drive, you know, two, three hours in the morning up to New York around like the West point area. And I'll just, and it's not like a leisurely hike for me. It's like, I have to conquer this. Like, <laughs> like I'm tr- like speed racing up the mountain because it's not a stop and smell the flowers. It's like to physically exhaust myself and get up there. And I, I usually like to do it where as I get into the top, I am, um, I'm catching the sun coming up because it's just, I don't know how to explain it. It completely like resets me and I feel rejuvenated. I feel high on life. Like, and then I'll, I'll come back down and maybe I'll do a little more hiking or after I'm done with that, I'm good. And I'll get in the car and I'll just turn around, drive the three hours back home. Wow. And make my wife insane because like now I have so much energy and I'm happy and I'm going. Yeah. And she's just like, can you yeah. just sit the fuck down? And I'm like, no, let's go. Like, yeah, and that's, that's a big thing for me. Shit. I, next time you're up here, don't get me before the hike. I'm not waking up that early, but after the hike, I'll get, oh, we'll go get some coffee. Cause now yeah, you're making me, wonderful. now you're making me uh, get a, get a new lens of appreciation for our area. I, I don't oh, take yeah. advantage of the mountains around here as much yeah. as I should. I literally just right. this weekend was up there. Um, I took some time and was spent in the the Catskills, which is, I guess, about another hour north, probably from where you're at. Little stupid I mean, town, te- Mountaindale. Oh, okay, yeah, we're 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 technically considered the Catskills, but it's like very, very, very southern Catskills, and the yeah. Catskills don't consider us part of the Catskills. Yeah, but yeah, yeah, no, I know it's. There's so many beautiful mountains up there and it is something to take advantage of. I, you know, I, it, one of the things that caught me on your website was you said, you know, we're turning, I'm paraphrasing, but you said something to the effect of, you know, uh, we're A2A is turning uh, post or, or uh, yeah, post separation, that post separation period for a veteran on its ear. And it, and then you talk about it by doing X, Y, and Z and by, you know, looking for internships, looking for opportunities for these, for folks that want to get into some sort of creative endeavor for you. Would you, would A2A have caught you in time? If someone else, if if you were two people and you were running A2A when you got out, would A2A have been able to catch you or was your problem set was what you're dealing with stuff that you needed to go on the journey you went through and it, and it wouldn't have been for you at that point. Yeah. Well, first, so that stuff that's written on the website, that particular blurb, I can't take credit for that. My uh, my chairman, uh, Steve Berman, um, he wrote all that. And I know he's very proud because I think it got published someplace. And like that was his. <laughs> so I have to give him credit. He wrote that. Um, he's not a veteran, um, but he's worked with a lot of um, veteran organizations. He used to be with um, another organization. Uh, no dogs get left behind. Um he was really integral with them and things started kind of fading with them. And I, I picked them up and, uh, we, we go to, to heads sometimes about our different point of views. His, he's definitely more the business oriented and I'm not. So, um, I love to give him credit for things like that. Cause I know it makes him happy. <laughs> um, but as far as, you know, so are you asking like, I'm just wondering where you were. Yeah, where you were coming from when you separated final. I mean, that was a lot of shit that was going. That's a yeah. lot of balls in the air to catch. Yeah. Um, but being that you were trying to get into a creative space, a space as a creator, 
and build your business and all that. Would A2A have been able to provide a resource for you if, uh, you know, if again, if right. you're two people, I mean, is it, is it something that would have been there or is it something where, I guess what I'm getting at, is it something where you kind of have to have your shit together a little bit and go, okay, hey, I'm, I'm ready for what you have to offer. Or is it something that can really be there at when there still is a bit of a therapeutic need and whether it right. still is a bit of a need of like, hey, I could use a little nurturing as well as direction and as well as just the logistics of, you know, getting me to this school or getting me to this training or taking the next steps in my career. So uh, again, that's something that's discussed um, with my board pretty frequently because I'm still in a process of really trying to communicate my own thoughts and Mm -hmm. my feelings and passions about what I want, you know, the focus of A2A to be. Um, And absolutely. um, We, the intention is to be there for, for everyone. In fact, I, um, I stress that a lot is that there's a lot of organizations currently that are great for veterans who are already on some kind of path of success, you know, and they aid them in that. And that's, that's cool. And we will work with that too. Um, but more like people fill out an op- application like on the website mm-hmm. and sometimes I'll get one and it's a guy that's like, you know, I have no fucking idea what I want to do. Um, and they literally speak, you know, in plain language on their application. I don't fucking clue what I'm doing. I just got out of a divorce. I got two kids. I'm trying to find my place in this world. And they'll like go down the whole gamut of like how many jobs they've had and lost and, you know, all that stuff. And they'll go, I don't, I have no idea what I want. And I feel like somebody else might look at that and go, this guy's a mess. Like, why are we going to invest time into sure. to, to getting him into an internship or giving him money for something. But for me, when I look at that, I see exactly the kind of person that needs that help. What I'm hearing is like, I'm trying to find my place in the world. Yeah. I've had all these jobs, but nothing's clicking. And I'm like, I'm, I'm, I need somebody to help me, you know? And that's, that's what I see. Um, even when I've hired people at the brewery, other veterans, they've come in on an application where they've had, fucking 10 jobs in the last year, somebody else is going to go, oh, you can't hold a job. What I'm going to see is a guy that's trying to find his way. Um, So that's the intention is to be there for those people, um, all different types of people, but especially the guy that does not have his shit together. You know, it's, I want to provide a place in any way that we need to for him to, you know, as we say, let's take that tactical pause, you know, and take a breath. And like, I don't care if you don't become a fucking uh, pottery maker or whatever it is that we're aiding you into doing. My intent is not to push you into becoming an artisan. My intent is for you to maybe find yourself in something that you're doing to take that breath, take your mind away from, you know, the, the, the shit that your life has become and get you to focus and that's that's the main intent behind what A2A is doing. We do work with people who already have established businesses that need some general assistance. Um, we work with people all over the map, you know, whatever place in life that they're at. Um, but for me, you know, my sole focus, the people that I hone in on the most are the ones that are a complete mess. How much do you get involved personally? I know you talked about being doing all the peer-to-peer work um, and that being a huge uh, 
a huge slice of your bandwidth going to that, which it would. Are you able to dedicate a bandwidth every single time that someone that you are able to identify someone and go, hey, yeah, I, I can spend the time with this person? Or is it something where you have to triage and go, I I, I gotta save, I gotta keep my ammo dry for the right person. I can't spend too much personal time. My organizationally, I might be able to do a bunch of stuff, but I can't really get in the weeds with you on this particular thing. Is that ever an issue? So I think I'm getting better now at doing the triage in the past. Um, so most of that peer-to-peer work, just to be clear, that's with Recalibri, which is a completely okay. different, better okay. nonprofit, um, also doing amazing things. Um, I do spend a lot of personal time zoning in and focusing in on individuals if I feel like they need it. You know, when we do the the peer group meetings, it's really a pretty informal sit around and talk about our shit. Um, you know, and then I just I facilitate the the leadership of those meetings. And obviously because of my studies, you know, I also bring some other things to the table and play around with ideas. Um, offline. I make myself completely available to to anyone who needs to reach out. And you know, you can ask my wife, doesn't matter what time my phone rings, um, day or night, I'm gonna pick it up. You know, I'm gonna pick it up and I'm gonna talk to somebody. Or, you know, if I sense some red flags, I'm gonna take some extra time and I'm gonna reach out to that person and talk to them a little bit more. Um, so that's and that's not just the peer stuff I do all around. I do that yeah. with my full-time job, especially I come across um, veterans that I end up working with. And depending on where they're at in life, um, I don't give them my work number. I give them my personal number and I'll start working with them like one-on-one and just because as a veteran, there, I don't, there's no separation to me, you know, as far as like work, you know, I can meet you on the street, you know, and tell me you served and um, you need some help. We're instantly friends and I'm going to help you. And that, uh, you know, I've gotten better at balancing it because I do get periods of like burnout of human. Um, But that's also where then I also have to stay focused on. You said that that self-care regimen and making sure that when I hit that burnout point that I know how to go and reset it. I'm going to ask you a question that I hope is a very quick and negative answer that you answer in the negative, but it's something that we've run into, which is um, the stolen valor thing, the grift thing. Um, I was not as well aware of that, especially in the nonprofit space. Um, Because who is like you you get out, you're trying to do good. You're looking for opportunities to help. Have you run into that where either organizations or people are taking advantage of you or, or trying to take advantage? Has that been a thing at all? Or have you, pretty much been yeah unfortunately i've 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 definitely encountered it um i had uh won't go too much in the details but i had a guy that came and was working at the the brewery so he had served but not nearly in the capacity he uh so he was in the coast guard and um he he came across as like he played off almost like the the, the moody depressed thing, yeah. but I like I rolled with it, you know. Like and it happens a lot where guys come in and they're dealing with some shit, and like I pick up on it and I'll point them in the direction or I'll talk to them, and just, it's what we do. So my my brewer, um, he's a civilian. Um, 
he actually, well, I shouldn't say that he just enlisted. He's leaving in like two weeks for huh. basic. Um, but he started working with this guy. They become great friends. And one day he comes to me and he's like, Hey, um, I think you really need to help, you know, so-and-so. And, uh, like he really needs some help. He's got some demons. I'm like, oh, you know, what's, what's going on with him? And he's like, man, he told me like, you know, he killed like eight guys. And I was like, exactly that same look. I was like, huh? And he's like, yeah, he was telling me like, he was like manning a checkpoint. And like, I think he said he killed a girl too. And like, Coast Guard. And not to mention, like, I don't care what the fuck service you've been in or like what organization you've been in. A guy that you've been talking to for like a week, you don't pop out with like, I killed eight people. Not to mention, statistically, pretty fucking unlikely that this one guy that walked into my brewery (laughs) killed eight dudes. Like, not really going to be a thing. So already the red flags. You know, but I start talking to the guy and um, at this point, I think I had started enrolling him into like the A2A internship, like to work at the brewery. So I had given him the application and I was like, all right, like, I just need you to fill this out with like a short bio of your service. Um, I'm going to need a copy of your DD-214 too. And I was like, just because, you know, we just got to verify service and are who you are and all that stuff. So he's like, all right. Um, so then... He had said some other shit to different people. Um, one is a, another friend of mine who's in the army, amputee. I'm um, gotten blown up. He's got like half a leg and like half a hand, and literally telling this guy his bullshit stories. Like, how do you? Are you really that fucking stupid? So, I it goes a few weeks. And I still don't have his two fourteen. So I sit down with him. Like, hey man, like I really need this two fourteen. He's like, oh yeah, it's in storage. I got to dig it out. So. Then he starts like telling me he had just started therapy. I had told him he should go to therapy and all these things before I really knew more about him. And he uh, he starts telling me that, you know, it's been good to go to therapy because he's finally able to talk about things that nobody knows about. And then he like he just pops out with this whole, you know, like everything's just so like secret. And I've never been able to tell anybody about it. Even my DD-214 doesn't say shit. As soon as he said that, I was like, this fucking guy. So eventually, uh, so I have friends that um, one guy was pretty senior in the Coast Guard at one point. So I called him and I'm like, look, man, I don't know that much about the Coast Guard. So like, but there's red flags all around. Can you like tell me if I'm nuts? Because I'm pretty sure this guy is full of shit. He did me one better. He actually got in contact with that guy's like old commander. And um, yeah. Wow. And it basically turned out that um, he was not some super high speed secret squirrel Coast Guard guy. He was a cook that got kicked out for being fat. And like, and I remember like when I pieced it all together, you know what? Like I did not, um, I didn't like berate him. I didn't like put him on blast on social media. Right. I brought him in. I sat him down and we had a conversation because I also had the thought that somebody else has to be in some kind of place to like make yeah. up all these stories. And I knew he was he legit was like going through some shit. Right. But uh, I had a whole conversation. I was like, look, you know, I'm not going to tell anybody, but this is what I, I want you to know that I know this about you. And you need to own up your shit. The guy was like engaged. And I was like, does your fiance like you tell her all these lies? 
And like, he was just real quiet about stuff. And then he didn't really say much. And we agreed that he was going to continue to come and work at the brewery, not with A2A, but like just help out. And I was going to continue to try and mentor him in some way because I just, that's what maturity is, right? Like it's not going, look at this fucking piece of shit. Right. Uh, Right. And then the guy ghosted, he didn't only ghost, but then he went around and uh, attempted to uh, like put a, put a bad light on my name. So I still haven't blasted him and I won't, but I mean, after this conversation, he knows who he is and a lot of other people too, without naming his name. But um, yeah, that was one, one that I encountered for sure. That was like, and I felt terrible. The guy that my brewer became his friend, like invested a lot of his like heart into like believing that this guy had gone through this shit and he really needs his help. And I felt terrible. Like I did tell him, I was like, I need you to know this guy is not who he says he is. So that was, that was one time. There's been a few others, like little things, but that was probably one of the biggest. What did it do to you? Did it, did it it kind of, did it put a tint on everything you did where you're like, ah, you know, I I can't give so much of myself or did it like, what do you do? What's your takeaway from that? Because I can, I can imagine what I, but I, you know, yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I think it's a matter of perspective. Again, that goes back to that whole maturity thing. Had it been a few years ago, like I would have been super pissed off. I would have, like I said, put them on blast. I would have been really immature about it. Um, But I think at that moment, it was just like, okay, like he still served. Yeah. I remember having a conversation with him, telling him, like, you know, dude, like you still signed the line. And regardless of what you did, you still did a lot more than most people do. Like you should be proud of that service. You don't need to go around and tell these stories. Right. Um, so I still like held on to that, that like he's still a veteran. You, you sure? know, he may not have done all the shit that he tried saying he right. did, and pretty wrong of him to put himself out there saying he did this stuff. Um but I, I don't know. I, I guess in my head, I still felt like this was somebody that needed some help. And that as a veteran, I was still going to be there for yeah. him or try to be. Um, I don't think it tainted my my viewpoint of things. Um, you know, it's I've seen a few of those things and it's opened my eyes to know that it's there. Yeah. But I don't know, man. I think like I know people get super butthurt about like the whole stolen valor thing. And I, and I get it. Um, but that whole, like, you know, people, oh, my, my brothers died in that uniform or whatever. Right. Like they, just because somebody is out there faking their service does not degrade or take away from your service. You know, like you screaming like an idiot takes away from your service, maybe. Right. And, you but know, also it, dep- it depends what the nature of the stolen valor is. Depends who's stealing the valor. Well, yeah. You know? Like I think and- that there was a chick recently that like, something with the VFW and like, I think they gave her like thousands of dollars and she became like a VFW commander. Remember that was a news article a while oh, back. Really? Yeah, she was like that, a heck working at the VA. She, she hadn't served, but like she had access to like, so I think she was able to make herself like a 214. I don't know what the hell, but I, it was, a, it went on for like years that they gave her tons of money. She represented all kinds of veteran charities. So something like that. Yeah, that's like yeah. you not just screwed yourself, but like you really people were giving out of the goodness of their heart. Like now you're making them doubt, right. like right. donating to veteran charities. Uh, like that's that's a whole different thing. Yeah, you're poisoning the well for a lot of people. 
What about for for you when you look at your successes and at the things, the warm fuzzies that make you go, fuck yeah, I'm ready to get back out there and do this again tomorrow. What are some of the biggest successes that you look back on with the most pride now? You know, like I said, it always goes back to those measures of success. Well, exactly. However you define success, right? Yeah. Whatever makes you feel good. I think it's, for me, it's it's just when I see somebody else get mm-hmm. up and get back out there and knowing that I was able to be there for that person. I think that's, it's really that simple. When I see somebody else go on and live their life and do it successfully, whatever that is for them, that's what success is for me. Um, it's nothing to do with, you know, money or whatever, right. you know, it's right. really just, if the people around me are good, then then I'm good. Does that make sense? It does. It does make sense. It's actually making me think. Do you think selflessness is an inherent part of getting better? <laughs> that's, what, that's what just came to me when you were saying. Well, that. yeah. I mean, there is like when I get into the weeds, but which I mean, hey, I'm pretty we're far there. in the weeds to begin. That's with. all right. We're right there. It's all good. But like, you know, from academic standpoints and all those things in psychology, just sometimes the act of altruism in itself can be a, I don't want to say selfish act, um, but it is sometimes rooted in somebody's own like personal harm, you know, their personal damage, like the need to help others is coming from, you know, a place where they've been hurt or feel the need that they need to help, you know, so they're going to go out and, I mean, that's a big part of probably why I do a lot of what I do. Um, it's just that drive, you know, to, to, <clears throat> to help others. So it's, it's selfless in one sense and also selfish in another, but I also tell people, you know, selfish gets such a bad rap as a word and it's okay to be selfish. Especially when that's how you're leveraging it. (laughs) It's it's like, Hey, what's the harm here? Um, Tori, this is, uh, I'm super stoked that you're this close. I, I would definitely love to meet up at some point next time post hike. As I say, not yeah. pre-hike, yeah, we'll post-hike. Uh, let me uh, tell everybody where they need to track you, where they need to follow you, all your social handles, how they how to get in touch with A2A, all that stuff. Yeah. Um, so A2A, it's pretty simple. We're at armsartisans.org. That's our website. Um, you can fill out an application there. You can donate there. I was highly encourage people to donate because I need money to keep rolling. <laughs> um, then we have uh we're at arms to artisans we're on instagram um we're on facebook so you can reach out to us at any of those places um and then if you're looking to connect with me personally so my instagram is uh tf underscore fisher or tf isher whatever you want to call it it's t fisher (laughs) you'll figure it out um you can always reach out to me personally there if somebody wants to um, if you're trying to sell me something or advertise something, I'm going to ignore you. Um, but that's that's pretty much it. All right, badass. This was a blast. This was a great meeting you. Um, come yeah, back. It was on. a good conversation. I definitely went uh, way deeper than I thought I would. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, it so. was. I I got a lot out of it, uh, and I know a lot of people are going to because this is. Um, yeah, I think there's a lot that a lot of folks, myself included, can relate to. Um, let's do this again sometime. Sounds great. That 
was Tory Fisher's profile in Havoc. Great lady. Great lady. Really enjoyed the hell out of that. Um, yeah. Look forward to talking to her again real soon. And uh, she gave you all the links. Check them out. Really interesting organization. And I should say this. They, um, I, you know, I said in the episode that, they, uh, that they're doing very unique work. There is a lot of overlap, I think, with uh, what our first sponsor of this episode, Second Mission Foundation, also does. Um, Charlie, Charlie Faint, obviously, who runs Second Mission Foundation, um, does do very, very similar stuff, um, or has at least done some similar things through Second Mission Foundation. Um, So I should say that, uh, but that is a space that needs good people. Um, conscientious, thoughtful, diligent folks doing the heavy lifting in. So, uh, but I should say that it, it kind of occurred to me much later in the episode. I was like, well, that's, you know, there's, there's some overlap there with second mission, but it kind of wasn't a good time to kind of bring it up. We were kind of on to other subjects and all that anyway, for what it's worth. Um, but again, a space that could use good people like Charlie and Tori. Okay, guys. So, on that note, we talked about the first sponsor of this episode. Um, I'll now talk about the second sponsor of this week's episode, Veterans Repertory Theater. Veterans Repertory Theater, as you guys all know, exists to produce veteran playwrights and celebrate veterans in the arts. It is a creative hub for talented veterans and world-class performers to create compelling live theater and events. And of course, is full disclosure, my nonprofit. Um, there is a lot going on at VetRep. I should say this. We're actually, I think, going to be revising our mission statement just slightly because there are um, some veteran jobs, a veteran jobs program that we are incorporating into our lines of effort. And I'm trying to project ahead because I'm recording this, obviously, a little in advance of when, this, when you guys are listening to this episode. Um, so at this point, I may have already announced it or I may be on the cusp of announcing some of this stuff, but you know, we, as we build out the physical theater for vet rep, and as we um, continue to launch a lot of shows and a lot of lines of effort in the New York city and Hudson Valley areas and regionally, I should say with Savage Wonderground, you know, there are a lot of, you know, Tori was talking about internships and things like that. That's actually, um, stuff that we are going to be doing, making sure that we are funding apprenticeships, internships, and jobs for veterans to learn the craft of theater um, and to have jobs and careers in the theater, Uh, lighting designers, sound designers, wardrobe, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So um, that's a major component of what we do. We're just not there yet because we're still physically building out stuff, but that is stuff that we'll probably be talking about more and more this year. And I'm very excited about that. Um, I can say that we are, again, I don't know when exactly we're going <laughs> to, we're going to put out press releases on this, but I think I'm okay to say that we are that this year. So 2022, obviously was our first full calendar year. We did a lot of stuff. We are not really expanding our lines of effort past what we did this year. We're just kind of deepening and broadening what we already established in 2022. 
but one thing we there is only one thing we are adding to the menu and that is our workshops um our acting workshop and a writing playwriting workshop so we will have details on that stuff coming out but those will be right now again sitting here several weeks in advance of when you guys are hearing this episode uh Right now, we are planning on this being a monthly endeavor that you can either take an acting workshop or a writing workshop with us. Um, acting is only in person. Writing is hybrid. You can be online or you can be in person. Um, but we'll have more details of that stuff coming out, which leads me to just say, go to vetrep.org. V-E-T-R-E-P dot org. Vetrep.org. Go there and you will see all of our lines of effort. You will have all the options available at your fingertips to find out all the stuff we're doing, how we're doing it, why we're doing it, when we're doing it, where we're doing it, all the rest of it. So check it everything out that you could possibly want to know about VetRep at VetRep.org. And my thanks to VetRep. That really sounds self-serving, doesn't it? Say my thanks to VetRep for co-sponsoring this episode. But nonetheless, I'm thanking myself for co-sponsoring this episode. (laughs) Okay. On that note, I think we've, I've now completely fried my brain. Uh, I need to thank our producer, Mike Neal, who just couldn't be better. Really appreciate Mike always coming in with so many last minute saves and <laughs> troubleshooting and all that. So thanks as always to Mike Neal. I'm Christopher Paul Meyer. My thanks again to Tori Fisher. We'll see you next time for another profile in havoc. 